Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 61, Sargon II, The Rise of the True King. Shalmaneser V died under unclear circumstances, and Sargon II ascended the throne of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. These are exciting times, Dan. Oh, yes, they are. Here is Sargon II. We mentioned him briefly two episodes ago, but I will repeat everything I said there and add a lot. Because he will... Own this episode, and then he will be the main <laughs> figure in upcoming shows. This will now turn into the Sargon Second podcast. Right. I hope everybody got their Sargon flags and their Sargon sweaters. If we were a bigger podcast, we would make Sargon the Second T-shirts. <laughs> uh, the name means Saruukin. Sargon is the Western Eye version. Saruukin, meaning the true king. Also then, probably meaning that he isn't the true king at all, but a usurper. He seized power in 722 BC. Uh, I think it was unrightfully. He is the first of four great kings. Uh, They are called the Sargonite kings. And these are kings that compare in how cool they are to Ashurnasipal II, Al-Shalmanister III. They are not quite the ultra-alpha king that... Tiglath Pelleser III was, but they are all great kings in their own right. And they are not quite the same. They have a lot of individual characteristics, despite the fact that the Assyrians try to make every Assyrian king look and feel the same. Uh, They are great in that they maintain a great empire and that they struggle to retain the great empire that TP3 built for them. 
sometimes they manage to expand the empire and under the reign of these four great kings the empire will become even bigger but uh, the accomplishments of tp3 are still uh, unique sargon the second is extremely busy during all his reign i, I like to imagine him having ad adhd <laughs> And uh, he's just like, he can never rest. And I don't think he wants to rest. He doesn't want to stay at home. He wants to go out and fight all the time. Asher says that the Assyrian king should go to war once a year. And Sargon II will happily do that. He is probably middle-aged at the time when he becomes king. We don't know. They never give us their birth dates. And um, we don't know the age of the Assyrian kings. We also get a significant improvement of the sources. There is a lot of sources from Sargon's reign. We did get a lot of sources from TP3, but now it improves to a whole nother level. We have a lot of sources. We have an abundance of royal inscriptions. Sargon II is in many uh, senses a classical Assyrian king. He will write down what happens on stone, on steles, and put them everywhere. He will put statues of himself wherever he goes. <laughs> He's like tagging places, talking about how great he is. Uh, there are chronographic texts. We have an abundance of letters going back and forth between different officials and Sargon, or just between different officials. Plenty of letters from this period. We get legal and administrative documents giving us details that we haven't had before. We get astrological reports. We get sculptured reliefs, a lot of them unearthed at a place called Dur Sharukin. I will talk more about Dur Sharukin. Obviously named after Sargon. It's Sargon City, even. Uh, so the first thing to sort out here is why he is Sargon II. Uh, Sargon is the second king of Assyria named Sargon. So that's the simple explanation. <laughs> but the, the story is all tainted by Sargon the Great of Akkad, a man who is maybe even more important than Sargon II. He was the king of Akkad and the founder of the Akkadian Empire back in 2300 BC, pretty much so long, long ago. And Sargon II will promote this guy, but he never claims to be the second because of Sargon the Great. He's the second because of Sargon I of Assyria, who ruled Assyria in 1920 BC to 1881 BC. We need them to talk about if Sargon II was a usurper. If you ask Sargon II, he will say, oh, of course not, I am the son of Tiglath-Pelesir III. <laughs> And uh, the, the case for this is that Tiglath-Pelesir III, being an Assyrian king, has a ton of sons. He has a harem, as everybody did, who was anything. <laughs> so he has plenty of wives and plenty of sons. But this is just like TP3 claimed to be the son of Adad-Nirari III. He has to claim to be the son of Tiglath-Pelesir III to get anyone to listen to him. But remember how Shalmanis III talked about his great father, Ashurnasipal II, all the time. He just couldn't get go into room without mentioning his dad. <laughs> but we have only one mention of Tiglath-Pelesir III by Sargon. 
And if your dad is the greatest king of all time, should wouldn't you mention him every time you enter a room? Seems logical. Yeah. So, uh, and we even have times when Sargon II really avoids mentioning the name of Tiglath Pelissor. We know that he's talking about Tiglath Pelissor, but he just can't bring himself to mention the name. I did a 45-minute long video of the final inscription of Sargon II, the great, when Sargon II tells you of his own deeds. I did a video on YouTube in Epic Voice, which is Sargon II's own story. And you should go to YouTube and listen to that because Sargon II tells his story in a much more interesting fashion than any Assyrian king before him. He breaks all the tradition. He doesn't repeat himself as much. He gives personal detail. He, he is a good storyteller, or his scribes were, because Sargon II couldn't read and write. No Assyrian king but one can read and write, because cuneiform is super complicated. <laughs> so we have a glazed plate with a label saying that Sargon II was the son of Tiglath Pelissor III, but that is all we have. So I firmly believe that both Tiglath Pelissor III and Sargon II were usurpers. But in spirit, Sargon II is the son of Tiglath Pelissor III. He will continue to rule the empire much more like Tiglath Pelissor III did than his actual son did. Uh, so if Sargon II is a usurper, it's really hard to track who he was because he has uh, deleted his tracks. Uh, we have something called the Asher Charter. In the Asher Charter, Sargon II relates that Shalmaneser V, the king he overthrew probably, uh, he says that Shalmaneser V wrongfully imposed corvi, that is slave labor, on the city of Asher the ancient city of Asher, the old capital, the religious capital, and Sargon II claims that the gods themselves deposed Shalmaneser V, and that gods themselves appointed Sargon II as the legitimate king of Assyria. And this implies that Shalmaneser V actually did not die uh, by any natural causes, that he was deposed by a revolution and killed implying then that Sargon II was not the heir to the throne at all. Also, it takes a year for Sargon II to take control of Assyria, and that shouldn't have happened if he wasn't a usurper. So he spends 722 to 721 trying to control the empire, and he's very thorough in deleting every record of what happened during this year, so we don't know anything. But at the end of the year, Sargon II is the undisputed king of Assyria. We know that Asher and Haran, another old Assyrian city, that they sided immediately with Sargon II, and they get a special tax-exempt status called Kidinutu because of this early loyalty. We also have a record of 6,300 Assyrian criminals uh, who were transported to Hamath in Syria. These were probably Shalmaneser V loyalists that were treated like conquered people then and moved to a dangerous border to represent Assyria. We also have no foreign campaign for the first regional year of Sargon II. 
And it seems that Kala, the capital of Assyria, is not really on Team Sargon. So Sargon is very reluctant to go to the capital because that's where all the powerful noble families are. And the powerful noble families used to control the empire only 20 years ago, only right before Tiglath-Pelesim III. So Sargon II looks back in the Assyrian record and um, thinks about what to do when he sees the deeds of Ashurnasipal II. And he comes up with the idea, oh, it's time to build a new capital, Dar Sharukin city of Sargon or Fort Sargon. So he begins pretty much immediately the construction of the new capital and then he kinds of avoid the capital, avoids the capital all the time while being king. Because I think he fears assassination and coups if he's in the capital. And the way to avoid going to the capital is to be constantly at war. Because now he has the full-time army of Tiglath-Pelesim III. So it's not hard to stay away from the capital if you have an excuse and Sargon II will find plenty of excuses to go to war. <laughs> so the building of the new capital begins and we'll talk more about uh, that capital when it starts to become finished. But now we have to introduce the son of Sargon II because he's put in charge of building the new capital. He is put in charge of representing Sargon in the real capital, Kala. So a lot of responsibility falls on the crown prince. Sennacherib, perhaps even more famous than Sargon II. But here he is, and he's probably 20-ish, between 20 and 30, but that's just a guess. And never has the crown prince had this much responsibility. And we will see in the story of Sargon II that this is a really good partnership. We have Sennacherib in exactly the position he is the best at. He's an administrator and a builder. And we have Sargon II in the position where he is at his best fighting people. <laughs> <laughs> So if this would ever change, if you try to make Sennacherib into the warrior, it could be a problem. Right. There is another important Sargon loyalist that is Sinna Husur, the Grand Vizier of the Empire. He is the younger brother of Sargon II, uh, who then also has to claim that he's the son of Tiglath-Pelesim III. Otherwise, it just wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, he seems to be a loyalist as well, and also doesn't have any evil plans regarding his brother. So we have a pretty strong team then ruling the empire. We have important guys who can be in the capital and make sure that king's will is done without the king actually having to go to the capital. I'm not saying that Sargon never was in Kala, but he tends to try to avoid it. Uh, the situation in the empire is extremely dire. Shalmaneser V focused on the conquest of Samaria, the destruction of Israel. Now, Shalmaneser V, we don't really know what he did because his record is so tainted by Sargon II. But if we believe Sargon II, then the empire is in ruin after just a few years under Shalmaneser V. 
And we have rebellions against Assyrian rule in almost all directions. The Babylonians are super angry at Shalmaneser V, and they have rebelled, as we discussed in the last episode, uh, making a Chaldean king of Babylonia. So we have rebellion in Babylonia and total loss of control of Babylonia in 722 BC. We have massive rebellions against Assyrian rule in the east. Urartu is still strong despite being hit by Tipitri, and Urartian influence is spreading from Urartu into the border areas to the east of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and there we have the Meneans. First, when I started researching this period, I thought that Mania was a kingdom, but it seems to be a really big collection of independent kings. And the Western Manian kings, they still are so close to Assyria that they don't dare rebel. But the northern and eastern Manians, they are now rebelling, either for themselves or to swear allegiance to Urartu. We also have the Medes in the east, and they, we know that they like to fight the Assyrians. And I no longer believe that the Medes are vassals of the Meneans. So the Medes are independent at this point. They are probably pro-Urartian. Uh, only three eastern provinces remain loyal to Sargon II when he reassumes control of the empire. And all the other eastern provinces are uh, problem areas for the new king. The loyalist provinces are Parsua, the ancient home of the Persians, Elippi, the weird uh, kind of like Elam, small kingdom in the east, and Karkar, not to be confused with Karkar in the west, spelled entirely different, sounds exactly the same. I was about to say, like, wait a minute, but okay. We'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Karkar in the east is spelled with K's, and Karkar in the west are spelled with Q's. Q's. Yes. Okay, west Q's. Gotcha. <laughs> there is also a huge rebellion against Sargon II in the west. Uh, there is There are rebellions in Syria. There are rebellions in Palestine. Uh, there are rebellions in uh, Samaria. Even though so many Hebrews were deported, Samaria still rebels against the new king. Maybe because they were loyal to Shalmaneser V. And the instigator behind all of the Western troubles seems to be Yao Bidi, the king of Hamath. And that's sort of a hint why all the Assyrian criminals have to go to Hamath later. Uh, so Damascus, now an Assyrian province, joins the rebellion. Simira joins the rebellion, Arpad joins the rebellion. And I think Damascus joining the rebellion, TP3 really <laughs> gave Damascus a beating. So I think these are Assyrians in Damascus behind this rebellion. Samaria breaks free, joins the rebellion, and the rebellion is also maybe joined by the small kingdom of Katarika. So now Sargon has a great question here. He knows he wants to go to war, he doesn't want Kala, he has plenty of wars to go to, so the only question is where to go first. So we'll let Sargon think about that uh, for a while, because we are going to China. China, it's been so long. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, the sources for China are really bad here. In 722 BC, we had King Huan taking over and ruling, kind of, Zhou China as an Eastern Zhou king. He will rule this, he will be the puppet ruler of Zhou China between 720 and 697 BC. The nobles in China, they did away with the powerful king, uh, kingship of the, Zhou Dynasty, of the Western Zhou Dynasty. And now we have important Chinese rulers in Qin, Wei, Zhao, Kui, Chan, and Shongshan. And they are all beginning to construct extensive fortifications uh, and armies and like become local warlords. But they're also all focusing on constructing extensive fortifications to defend the borders of the Yo Kingdom because there are barbarian incursions. Remember, they brought in the barbarians to bring down the Western Yo kingship, and the barbarians are still around. So here we have the first, the very earliest signs of the Great Wall of China. At the Great Wall of China, in all its majesty, it's nothing like these walls, because these are stamped earth walls and gravel walls between board frames. They are primarily made to withstand attack by small arms, such as spears. So this, this is just earthen ramps. So don't, don't think of it like the, uh, like the Great Wall. Uh, one ruler sticks out in China. There is the Duke Shuang of Cheng. He is a powerful ruler and he refuses the Zhou King in some way. He clearly defies the Zhou King and gets away with it. And every other noble sees this. And of, yeah, it's the puppet ruler thing still working, but then the other rulers will have to deal with this powerful guy some way. So remember Duke Shuang of Cheng. Uh, let's go back to Babylonia. All right. You, re you remember Merodach Baladan? Yes, I do. Yes, he's the first of the three great arch enemies of Sargon II. Uh, we met him before when he paid tribute to TP3. When TP3 invaded Babylonia, Merodach Baladan just saw that this was not going to work out. I am with this guy. But when Shalmaneser V treated Babylonia badly and then died, Merodach Baladan seized power. He is a Chaldean of the sea land. He, uh, he receives terrible press. In these great sources from Assyria, Merodach Baladan is evil incarnate. If you believe what Sargon says about him, everybody in Babylonia is oppressed. Everybody hates this guy. But in fact, Merodach Baladan might be the best Babylonian king that we have talked about on this show. He's a diplomatic genius. He is making friends with everyone around Assyria. Even people who are not in direct contact with Babylonia will listen to Merodach Baladan. And Merodach Baladan's message is clear and concise. It's like, I managed to throw off the Assyrian joke. And if you can do this too, we can all be free. Let's bring down Sargon II. 
And then Merdak Balaran tends not to do anything really. That's just hope that everybody else. <laughs> Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Sargon. His first great diplomatic triumph is that he makes a big alliance with the king of Elam with the very nice name of Kumban Nikash. Kumban Nikash. Say that fast three times. Kumban Nikash, Kumban Nikash, Kumban Nikash. Oh, maybe it wasn't that hard. <laughs> so Elam is to the east of Babylonia in southern Iran today, the good part of Iran. But the Elamites are with Merdak Baladan. They will help him. And then Merdak Baladan makes them do something. He doesn't wait for Sargon's invasion because he doesn't know where Sargon wants to go. He knows that there are rebellions in all directions, but he doesn't know where Sargon will go. So he makes the Elamites attack, the Elamites attack Assyria together with Babylonia. But then he probably doesn't show up in time. So it's an Elamite attack on the Assyrian garrison and deer. And Deir is a very strategic location in the eastern borderland between Babylonia and Assyria. It's far to the northeast in Babylonia. And this battle has some confusing record about it. Uh, so there is a battle at Deir between the Assyrians and this alliance. We have three different sources telling us three entirely different <laughs> stories about what happened at this battle. Sargon II says that I went to Deir, I met the Elamites and the Babylonians, I just kicked their ass so hard. <laughs> and it was my first great victory. I am a great king. And this is probably just pure bullshit. Merodach Baladan isn't uh, much better. So he claims that I went to Deir. <laughs> I fought the Assyrians together with the Elamites, and I won the battle for Babylonia. 
And I believe that the third, the third source, which is the Babylonian Chronicle, that has some sort of interest in recording what actually happened. And it says that the Elamite army, led by King Kumbanikash, arrived before the Babylonians. And they felt so strong that they attacked the Assyrians. And the, Assyrian, the Assyrians came out of there. It was just sort of the local garrison under some general. And the Elamites won. And then Merodach Baladan made it there and started writing on his daily that he won. <laughs> the Assyrian army retreats to there and managed to hold the town. So nothing much comes out of this battle except that we have an Assyrian defeat. When now the Assyrian army is entirely remade by TP3, it's so strong. We haven't seen it lost really. But here, the Elamites uh, actually defeats the Assyrians. It seems pretty unbelievable. Yeah, but the Elamites are, we don't really know a whole lot about how they're organized and so, but the Elamites are organized, have a great army, and they could probably defeat a small Assyrian garrison led by someone else than the king. Right. Okay. So remember that Elamite armies can win against the Syrian armies if the odds are right, whereas some armies just never can win against the Syrians. Uh, Sargon makes his decision in 720 BC. He decides that he has to go west first. And I think the reason to go west first is to, uh, because these are the fresher conquests. He has to protect the conquest of Samaria. He doesn't want Samaria to reappear as a kingdom. So he goes west. It's absolutely no surprise attack. They are expecting him. There is a great alliance between a lot of people. Hamas, Damascus, Israel or Samaria and Semira and Arpad and possibly Katarika. They form a great allied army and they look for a site to make a stand against the Assyrians. And they remember the Battle of Karkar in 853 BC. We spent an entire episode covering the Battle of Karkar. And in the end, 12 Allied armies stopped Shalmanes III. They didn't defeat him, but they managed to stop Assyrian expansion. So let's meet Sargon II at Karkar. And then we have the Battle of Karkar Part 2. And it's not very exciting. Sargon II arrives, his army is better than the army of Shalmanis III, and there are less allies facing him, so it's an astounding victory, and this time it's not a lie. So I don't know why Sargon II doesn't mention this as his first victory, because it is his first victory, and it's a great one. So with this single blow to the west, Sargon reconquers Israel, he reconquers Gaza to the south of Samaria. And then he has turns uh, and takes... Uh, his, his power is all over Syria. And here we have a record of Osorkon IV, still around in Egypt, still claiming to be the pharaoh of all of Egypt, if you ask him if you are a foreigner <laughs> from the north. He's still not talking about the Nubians. He doesn't mention Pie. He's just, oh, nothing to see here. And he even sends an Egyptian army to stop this 
Assyrian incursion. Maybe now is the time. He didn't show up when Samaria was threatened, but now he sends an Egyptian army to protect Gaza because he doesn't want to have the Assyrians as neighbors again. But the Egyptian army is defeated on the border of Egypt, indicating that Sargon was already there or that Sargon pursued them to the border. But at Rafia, on the Egyptian border, the Egyptian army is soundly defeated. And in this one single year, Sargon II has defeated every enemy he had in the West. And he even has time to reconstruct the West. <laughs> he reoccupies the rebel states, he punishes the offenders, he replaces uh, offending kings and leaders with loyal kings and leaders, still locals. He takes a lot of people and deports them to Assyria. And we talked about these deportations because Shalmaneser V maybe did parts of them or some of them. Sargon II will claim all the deportations as his. We get these 6,300 Assyrian criminals moving into Hamath. Uh, big resettlements in Hamath and Samaria. And this operation is so big that it probably takes more than this year to complete. But if you ask Sargon II, he did all this in 720 BC. And in the middle of this mayhem, we have Judah with King Ahaz. And he has managed to bet on the Assyrians before and survived as a vassal kingdom. And he is once again, he's like, oh, Sargon II, I'm so happy that you arrived. <laughs> yeah, we are still loyal. And he managed to keep Judah as a vassal kingdom and not the province of Assyria. So Judah still hanging on. Uh, Samaria then becomes finally, totally and forever an Assyrian province. And the Assyrian governor of Samaria becomes a very important position in the empire. He will hold the eponymy twice. And the governor of Megiddo to the north of Samaria holds the eponymy once. And we have clear records of Judah as a tributary state of Assyria here from, from the time of Sargon II. In 719 BC, Sargon finally becomes the eponym. You know, the eponym chronicle mentions one important Assyrian guy every year. Right. It always starts with a new king. But this is, he became the king in 722 BC and isn't the eponym until now. And that is highly exceptional. So it implies that Sargon II really didn't have total control of the empire before this first, this first successful campaign. And the, the eponym chronicle reads, during the eponymy of Sargon, the king of Assyria entered something because the record is lost. But we will discover that it probably said Mania. Because after solving the situation in the West, Sargon needs to go east. And this is maybe because of this battle at Deir, where the Elamites defeated the Assyrians. He knows that Babylonia will be hardest to reconquer. So why not go for the low-hanging fruit? Maybe the situation in the east isn't that bad. So let's look at the situation in the east. Urartu, still growing strong in the north, stretching its influence into the Mania. Uh, Assyria claims some control, as I already mentioned. This is from the headwaters of the lower Saab, across Namri and Samoa to the Diyala River. 
We have Meads in Eastern Mania and Urartian fortresses almost in the north of Mania. And then finally Sargon then goes east into Mania. And there is an excuse even, because we have a Manian king, Iransu. He has he personally met Tiglath Pelleser III and declared his loyalty to him uh, when he was younger. And he has remained faithful to the Empire all this time. And two other Manian kings are trying to take everything he has. We also have a fourth Manian king, Mitati of Skirtu. These names, will you will love them. Uh, he is supplying the enemies of King, uh, of King Iranso with troops and cavalry, but he's not getting involved personally in the battle. He's just uh, giving them some sponsorship. A Sargon comes into this area. The disloyal Manian kings are like, uh oh, this is not good. And once again, Sargon just sweeps through the area. He takes the offending cities, he tears down their walls, he carries off people, he carries off property. The uh, Mitati of Sekirtu, he gets away because he wasn't, he, his army wasn't involved. So he claims that, oh, these are just evil rumors. I never supplied anyone. But the, the one who comes out on top then is, of course, Iransu, who was loyal all this time. So he is put back in charge of everything he owned, and then he gets pieces of his neighbor's lands by Sargon II. Like, you are a faithful vassal, here is some towns, villages, nice fields and stuff that I'm sure you want. And he's like, please, oh, thank you, Sargon. I am always <laughs> loyal to Assyria. And in this great inscription by Sargon, he's, the, the words he's using to describe his... <laughs> Is the people are loyal to him. It's, uh, just listen to it, it's great. So we're still in 719 BC. The problems in the East are, they are not solved, but we have this huge victory. So Sargon just keeps going. And now his targets are the Sukaneans, the Baleans, and the Abitikinians. <laughs> uh, who are they, you ask? Yeah. They are people who have sworn allegiance to Urartu. Uh, when Urartu looked strong and there were no Assyrians, they were opportunistic and they were like, yeah, of course we are with the Urartians. And that was a bad call, because now Sargon II just steamrolls over them and uh, uproots them, deports them to Syria, to this new, <laughs> newly conquered territory in Syria. And that's the end of them. So you don't need to care about them anymore. <laughs> there they're gone. That's it, folks. And now, now you would think that the situation in the East is sorted out, but it is not sorted out at all. This was just the foreplay. But Sargon II, maybe he thinks he is done in the East, because he returns to the West. And as soon as he goes away, trouble starts again. And he will be busy by other things for three years. So in these three years, things will get dire in the East. Back home, Sargon is then marketing himself by promoting Sargon of Akkad, that king from 2300. So we get uh, 
a lot of literary works speaking about how cool Sargon of Akkad was. And I mentioned this before, that the Assyrians, they really like to think that Sargon of Akkad is an Assyrian. And Akkad, we don't know where Akkad was located, but it was probably very close to Assyria, so maybe there is some truth to this, but uh, nah, maybe not. <laughs> there are chronicles, there are omen collections, legends and epics, and even a treatise on the geography of the Akkadian Empire. So you get a lot of renewed interest among the scholars of Assyria in the Akkadian Empire and Sargon the Great. But it's all kind of propaganda for Sargon II. In 717 BC, the work on the new capital, Darsharukin, has gone so far that it's officially founded in 717 BC, but it's not done. And we get a mention of the new city in, uh, in the Eponym Chronicle, which you can read. During the eponymy of Tabsarasur, the Chamberlain, Dur-Sarukin, the new capital of Assyria, was founded. But um, as I said, we'll talk more about Sorgon's new city when it becomes closer to completion. A short mention of Greece after the Levantine War. Argos grows a lot more powerful in Greece. Argos was already growing powerful, but now it, I think you could say that it is the most powerful Dorian state, which I claimed in the last episode, more powerful than Sparta and the great arch rival of Sparta. Both Argos and Sparta will claim to be the number one Dorian city-state of Greece. But in about this time, in the 710s BC, Argos extends her control into the southeastern part of the Peloponnese. They annex a place called Cythera, or Cythera, and uh, make the people of Cythera into Periosei, much like it works in Sparta. So they are like somewhat free citizens of the second grade. Uh, they also attack a place called Asine. And the citizens of Asine flees west and appeal to the Spartans. And the Spartans have just come across a lot of new land in Messenia. So they give this, they give some of this land to the, to the people from Asine. So the people from Asine are much grateful to the Spartans and they become Spartan vassals. And this, of course, doesn't help in the Argos-Sparta relations. So Argos is like, well, you took, a, you helped our enemies and gave them new land. Hmm, bad. Right. Uh, some Greek colonies are founded here, so it's time for the Greek colony report. Despite everything that happens in the Lelantine War, Chalcis founds a new colony in region. Achaean and Trucenian settlers found Cybaris in Magna Graecia in Italy. Magna Graecia is uh, Greater Greece, and it is often, when people speak about that, they generally mean Greek colonies in Italy. And this is the reason why the Romans have to conquer all these weird Greek cities that are in Italy. <laughs> it's, uh, they, they are founded, we've already seen some of them founded, but more are coming. Miletus 
powerful Greek city-state on the Turkish coast. They refound Sinuva, an old Hittite city, as a Greek colony roughly at this time. And Croton, also in Magna Graecia, is founded by Achaean settlers. So that's uh, that's what uh, that's the start for Sargon. But uh, his situation is still problematic, and he still has new arch enemies. Well, that's a heck of a start. Yes. All right. Well, I guess that's it for this episode. In the next episode, what is coming up? What happens next in the epic tale of Sargon II, Dan? As I said, there are three great archenemies of Sargon. The first one is Merodach Baladan. The second is the king of Urartu, and he will be a major player. But next time, we will introduce the most well-known enemy of Sargon II, and well-known for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> So you know his name. You know him better than Marduk Balam. You know him better than Sargon II. Because he is King Midas. O-M-G. King Midas. The and King Midas. Ah, uh, <laughs> maybe. Maybe, okay. But it's King Midas, and we'll talk about him. We'll probably name the next episode King Midas. All right. Looking forward to that. Please go to our YouTube channel, like and subscribe. Also, share it with your friends. Give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever other form of podcast consumption you have. Please do. We really need iTunes reviews. That's That increases the visibility of the podcast. And also, it's a great way to give us feedback on what we do. So exactly. give us an honest iTunes review, please. Yeah. We would love to hear it, and we'll read it, even if it's critical. Yes. All right, facebook.com slash fanofhistory, thefanofhistory.wordpress.com. As always, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us. If you want to follow Dan on Twitter, it's at Dan Horning. If you want to follow me, I'm at Cerulean Says Hi. So... For I have to mention one more thing. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, I do have some big Swedish podcasts, and uh, I've noticed that uh, I'm trying to make uh, the Swedish listeners come over and listen to my English podcasts, such as this one and Fan Astronomy and Game of Thrones chat. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Swedes find my irritating because it has such a thick Swedish accent. <laughs> Whereas my impression is that you Americans love it. Oh, yeah. Well, everyone I know. Especially if you are like... one of these Swedish listeners, don't miss my serial killer podcast, Seriemördarpodden. So that's my podcast recommendation for this week. Sounds good. But yeah, everybody I know loves hearing, especially stuff like this, educational information in the... Uh, a European accent seems to be seems to be over the top for most people. They they really eat it up. So well, that that's good for me at least. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. So for this week, I am Brendan, and I'm Dan, and this is the fan of history. Sorry. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.